Hello and welcome to the Building Your Path podcast. This podcast records the stories of those who have achieved their own form of success in their respective fields. Today we have Dr. Kenneth Jones, retired professor emeritus at Cal State University Northridge, woodworker and former Air Force. Please enjoy. So if you could please, um, what is your name and occupation? My name is Kenneth Jones. I'm retired now, but I'm a retiree from Cal State University Northridge. I'm a professor emeritus in biology. And subsequent to my time at CSUN, I was the owner and CEO of a biotech company called Genetic Identification Services. Did that for 18 years or so. And then um, after we closed that company, I started focusing on woodworking. It had been one of my major hobbies essentially all my life. And now it's essentially my main activity and I refer to it frequently as my third career. Um, mostly I work on turning bowls. I'm a, I'm a wood turner. And so what would be your definition of success? My definition of success has to do with what one is doing and, and what one derives satisfa- satisfaction from. It's got little to do with what, what the income is from it, but it's, put it this way, if a person, person has a passion for some sort of activity and is able to focus on that activity and earn a, earn a living from it too, then I think that person is successful. I've often said that I define work as something you're doing when you'd rather be doing something else. And, and so if one is lucky enough to spend 30 or 40 years doing something they are really passionate about and also get paid to do it, that's a good way to spend your life. And so you were talking about, you saw this essentially with your whole, um, your time as a representative for the chancellor at CSUN, correct? Yes. And so could you please elaborate on your experience there? Well, I had, later on in my years at at CSUN, I got into administration and and, uh, faculty governance and administration. I was a dean of graduate student of studies for a, a year, filling in as a for a person who had passed away. And so I, I learned about, I met people from all over the campus, faculty from all over the campus. I hadn't done that as a biology prof. Um, but one of my jobs when I got into faculty governance was to work as a representative of the chancellor to various statewide committees library committee, for example, but also intersegmental committee. I may not be remembering all the details quite correctly here, but I remember being on committees where there were representatives from the University of California, from community colleges throughout California, and from San Fran- and from the Cal State University system. And so I, and plus I knew a lot of people at UCLA because I had maintained 
relationships there after after graduating in 1964 with my PhD. But anyway, um, I, I noticed something among about these people, and these are people you would probably classify as being successful in their in their profession. The UC people were research-oriented. Research was the main thing. It's the reason they were there. It's what they had a passion about. And and if they had to teach, it was almost an imposition on their time. They did teach, but they'd rather be doing research. And, and they had to do research. They had to have grant money to even succeed in that system. At the other end of the spectrum, and neither end is better than the other, but at the opposite end of the spectrum are the people who would be committed solely to teaching and did little or no research in their, in their activities, unless it was educational research. And those were the community college people. Their job was to teach, and they knew it, and they accepted it, and they had a passion about it. Teaching students was really important to them. It, and in the middle were the CSU people. I'm looking at three dots on the wall now, and I'm thinking <laughs> this fits exactly. The dot on the big paint smear on the left there is the UC. At the other end is the community colleges, and right in the middle there's the CSU people. And the CSU people varied some were passionate about their research, as passionate as any UC faculty ever I ever met. And they had to teach, but they accepted that because it was part of the part of the the um, mission of the of the system. And among those faculty there were people who also thought they weren't there to teach, it was a waste of resources for faculty to research to be doing research and they were there to, to teach. In fact, some of them had the same passion for teaching as typical community college instructor. Others had the same passion for research as a typical UC professor. So the CSU faculty were kind of in the middle. I think it's more heavily oriented toward research these days. But when I was there, it was a real question of why we were there to do research or to teach. I was on the Academic Senate in the year that the state legislature approved for the first time money to support faculty research in the CSU. Million dollars. Pocket change nowadays, but just the idea that they included money to support research in the CSU validated the role of CSU faculty in doing research. Didn't negate their role as instructors and in teaching at all, um, but it identified formally CSU as a, as a research institution and a teaching institution, which they had known about all along anyway. And so how do you think that this plays into your whole idea of your definition of success? My definition of success applies to a lot more than just academic institutions and academia. My idea of success is when you are able to to do something that you have a passion about, you're 
successful at it in the sense that you're doing it and and you live to do it and you may get paid to do it. I remember we had a seminar at, at Cal State Northridge one time where the faculty member, a faculty member from Caltech was over there and he was telling us about some state-of-the-art work that he was doing and it was clear he was really passionate about what he was doing. It was so exciting. It was so exciting that that, that excitement transferred to the audience and I know I shared his excitement. But he said at the end of the talk, he says, it's really amazing when you can have something that you're passionate about. You'd be doing it for, for nothing, if for free, if you could afford it, but they're paying you to do it. Well, that kind of passion and, and being involved like that in something you love is the way I would define success. You notice I didn't say anything about how much money they're making or how much money they have in the bank as a result of it. To me, success doesn't involve that. That's assuming you have enough to, to survive on and enable you to do what you want to do and what you're passionate about doing. That's success to me. So did you discover this in high school or was there something that kind of maybe, I guess, led to your career path and this whole idea? Uh, no, I didn't discover it in high school. I think I had the passion, but I wouldn't have called it success then. It was after I had some decades, 30 or 40 years of, of thinking about it that I kind of came to this formulation of my idea of what success is. You know, it's like the difference in a job and a profession. In a profession, you're doing it all the time. So, so what put you on this, this path? I guess you said you were saying about your Boy Scout experience? My specific path, my personal path? Um, when I was in high school, I was pretty active in the Scouts and uh, an explorer post and we had a group of guys that I was really close to and uh, we all got, several of us got eagle in the same ceremony and um, I was exposed to a lot of subjects that I otherwise wouldn't know anything about. Bird study, for example, um, first aid, all that kind of stuff and, and um, so when I got to UCLA, I started UCLA as an undergraduate in 1952, and I was a chemistry major. Also, I had to start working for a living. Um, not for a living, but at least start working, and I did, and I was working too many hours a week, and I couldn't keep up on my grades. And a counselor advised me that I should change my major and cut back my work. By that time, I, I thought I wanted to go into the Air Force for a career, and so I had to choose a subject to major in just to get, to, to graduate, to get out of UCLA so I could go into the Air Force. My grades were in the Air Force, and the ROTC stuff were good enough that I would have been able to have had a permanent commission, and so I was thought I was pretty passionate about being a pilot. So um, when the counselor told me that I had to change my major, 
or recommended that I change my major, I had to decide what to do. And so I thought back over the merit badges that I'd earned in the Scouts. And there were three subjects that stood out that corresponded to majors at UCLA. One was zoology, one was geology, and one was botany. I had, I had merit badges and, and those are related subjects. And so I knew something about them. So I didn't take zoology because there was too many pre-meds in there and it was just too competitive. So it was between geology and botany, both of which I really enjoyed. But zoology would have taken, I mean, um, uh, geology would have taken a semester longer to graduate than botany was. So I chose botany. And I took my first course in it and it changed my life. I was so fascinated by it. I loved it so much. And, and it was taught by Mildred Mathias at UCLA as a, a giant in, in, in the botany world. And, and then I met other faculty and I met a professor named Bernard O. Finney, who kind of took me under his wing and gave me a place to, to focus, to sit and study. And my grades really soared after that as a botany major. By that time, I wasn't thinking about going in the Air Force as a career anymore. But I still had to go in. And so when I went into the Air Force, I, I um, went in with a three-year commitment and planning to go into flying training. But at the time, the Air Force decided that um, they wouldn't give flying training to anybody unless they agreed to, to convert to indefinite status, which would have meant at least five years in and kind of spoiled my opportunities to come back for graduate work. So I, I declined to change the contract and went in for three years. And in that three years, I had my, at the start of that uh, process, I had my choice of three different schools, communications, photography, or and the only other one that had any interest to me was um, intelligence officer school. Well, that's the one they assigned me to. So I went into the Air Force as a, I mean, went, continued in the Air Force as an intelligence officer. And uh, they sent me to Europe. And there I studied my, studied languages. I was in France, we lived in France and then in Germany. The two languages that I used for my PhD work after I came out. And um, they sent me to Europe to a small base in France a fighter squadron base where they had F-100s um, and it was a nuclear strike base. And after a year or so, I think, um, France decided they didn't want any American atomic weapons on their, on their territory, in their country. So the base was moved to Germany and so I moved there. At the time, my wife was with me. My son was born there, and while we were in Europe, and um, 
So my duties as an intelligence officer were to train the pilots. I was a uh, targeting officer, so I maintained records on potential targets that would be given to the pilots in case of a conflict. Um, I'm probably the only one I know who has ever sat on a 1.1 megaton bomb that was strapped to the bottom of an airplane. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't armed, they wouldn't arm it until it got in the air, but uh, I had taken some classified material to our, re our remote base in Germany from France. We were sitting around talking, and I sat down. And I said, Oops! Look what I'm sitting on. And um, so, anyway, I was targeting officer. I trained pilots on evasion and escape measures, which is really ironic because I was just a kid and I didn't know anything about this stuff. Um, kind of hammed it up like I do, like I did for 30 years as a teacher. Um, but anyway, I, that's what I did there. See, is there anything else of significance in the Air Force? Mostly, mostly that, just targeting officer training, pilot training on different subjects, top secret control officer. Um, I, I was responsible for all the classified stuff for our squadron. One was a book the size, the size of a Sears catalog that had targeting information. Uh, for all of the all of the uh, European potential targets, and that was scary because I had no place that where I could keep it for the special classified status that it had. So I put it in the back of a top secret drawer and turned to my staff and said, "Okay, gentlemen, do not don't look at that." <laughs> so. So anyway, uh, another lieutenant up somewhere up north in Germany had lost his copy, and they found it the next day. It had been apparently pushed off the desk in a trash can. And the man that was the general who was in charge of European forces, American forces in Europe, uh, said the next time that happened, he personally would see to it that the person responsible would go to Leavenworth. So, so I was pretty. Pretty uptight about that line of my, that aspect of my work, but anyway, I um, finally um, came home, went to immediately into UCLA as a graduate student. I took a lot of courses, and uh, I was in the botany department at UCLA, and my focus initially was on isolating a, a plant hormone plant hormones called gibberellins were produced by a fungus called gibberella fujikori. And it was a source of hormones and, and they were under genetic control. And I initially started on a project where we could work out the biochemical pathways for the production of these different gibberellins in the fungus using mutants and seeing which compounds uh, accumulated as a result of a blockage due to a mutation and so forth. But in the course of that work, I came across a compound, a gibberellin compound that had never been described before. So since I also had a lot of organic chemistry training, uh, my dissertation work went from genetic research to 
chemical work, um, natural products chemistry work, working out the structure of that hormone. It turned out to be called subsequently gibberella, gibberellin 13, I think it was a long time ago, so I don't remember it all. A13 maybe. But in the, any case, um, I worked out the structure and the biological properties of that compound, and that was the nature of my dissertation. And so I went from there to San Fernando Valley State College in 1964 and became an assistant professor and then on to associate and finally to um, professor. And I'm now emeritus professor from Cal State in biology from Cal State University Northridge. When I started in at San Fernando Valley State College, uh, I was really nervous. I remember to this day my knees shaking in the first biology class I taught in Bio 150 it was. And, and um, since I didn't have much in the way of zoological training, I didn't know some of the stuff I had to teach in that course. So I was only a few hours ahead of the students. You know, the night before I was when I learned about kidney structure and function and all of that kind of stuff. So, so anyway, I started teaching there. And then about four years later, I got promoted to associate professor. And three years after that, I was promoted to full professor. In that time, I also became involved in faculty governance and administration. I was uh, filled in as Dean of Graduate Studies for a year after the, the, the real Dean died. And so I filled in for him as a, as a substitute and then went back to the department. And shortly after that, I was elected as chairman of the department. And so I served in that capacity for four years finally decided this is not what I got in this line of work to do, so I re submitted my resignation to the department. And um, it was also about the time that recombinant DNA was developing. And I hadn't had any training in it, hadn't even existed as a field when I was a student. So um, I took a work workshop in it down at Long Beach State and in those days you could learn enough in just a week of training to teach it and do research in it and and so um, came back after that and developed with a couple colleagues developed courses in recombinant DNA and molecular genetics and developed um, a lab course in recombinant DNA and that was a very exciting thing to do because it was so new and there was, they're answering questions that I've been wondering about for decades. So did that for a few more years. And finally, the earthquake happened in 1994, I think it was, the Northridge earthquake. And it, it did so much damage to Cal State Northridge, it was clear I wasn't going to be able to get my program running again in the time I had left until retirement 
And so a friend of mine and I started a company. He provided the money and I provided the subject for starting a company called Genetic Identification Services. And then I, when I retired, uh, it was to, to that company. So I was the CEO and, and the owner, part owner initially, and then he sold, sold me his half of the company. I became the owner of the company. And we, we stayed alive for another 18 or 20 years and provided genetic markers for researchers throughout the, throughout the world, actually. By the time, and it was all animal and plant and microbe stuff, actually, no humans. We developed markers in some 700 different species over the years, did projects for state and federal agencies as well as developing the markers. The markers are category called microsatellites and we develop markers for all of those species for researchers from Syria even, but Germany and England and China and I can't remember now where all they were from. Actually did the work for cow fishing game and for other state agencies, did studies on uh, trout for New Mexico State Fishing Game, Game and Fish, I guess they're called, and um, and so forth. One of the exciting things about that period of time was we developed markers for for California. Was it blacktail deer? I think now, and and the cow fishing game had us do that. And then we, uh, they were used to uh, prosecute poaching cases. One case, for example, was where somebody was driving, a man was driving his pickup truck along the highway, was stopped at a Caltrans um, stop where work was being done. They saw that he had some dead deer in the bed of his truck and it was out of season and they were does. And so the guy took off and they, the Caltrans people reported him to Highway Patrol. They saw where he went in the truck. Highway Patrol went up there and they found the three deer laid out on a tarp. But the man was gone. But they had his driver's license, so they, I mean his uh, license plate number. And so they went to his home found blood in the bed of his truck and matched that blood to one of the deer on the tarp. And so he was prosecuted and, and uh, eventually had to pay a fine and whatever they did, I don't know. But the significant thing about it was it was the first case of molecular genetics, the application of microsatellites to wildlife forensics in California. And so now it's routine, uh, but they were able then from that point on to to use these kinds of markers without having to prove their their value to the court every time they had a new case. So that was one of the high points of, in my my opinion, of my time at, at the company at GIS. Eventually, because of technological changes in DNA sequencing capability. It was clear we weren't going to be able to afford the equipment and it was time to retire anyway. So, so we, I closed the company 
the students went off to graduate work, most of them, and um, and I went home and opened up my garage shop, and now I turn wood. Fantastic. And you said that you've been turning uh, this wood is your hobby, correct? Yes, it's 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 my passion now. Actually, it it is a hobby, but it's also a passion. I love to do it. Fantastic. When I turn wood now, I, I I do bowls mostly, and over the years I was able to accumulate a lot of good tools and equipment. For example, I have a saw stop saw. It's a saw that if you touch the blade while it's turning, the blade drops down in a fraction of a second so quickly you don't cut your finger off. And that gives me a lot more confidence when I'm up there because I'm really kind of chicken when it comes to working with some of that equipment. But the bowls that I make, I, I've sold a few, uh, but mostly I give them away. I gave them to, to um, Graduate Student Association, Retired Faculty Association for Graduate Student Fellowships at, at um, CSUN. This year, for the first time, I gave a bowl to uh, a, to some, I forget what the group is called, but somebody associated with Children's Hospital, and they sold it at a silent auction they have, and it did well. And so I'll be doing more of that in the future. So I have no need or particular desire to make money turning bowls, but I like it when I can give them to people. and. And they can demonstrate that they like them because they'll buy them at a, at a silent auction. It's a, a charitable auction, you know. And it's, it's not much, but it's what I love to do. And I sit out, and I, sometimes I find myself sitting out in my garage working, and I'm smiling. I just have this dumb smile on my face because I look around and I see my saws and my, my lathe and all that stuff that I accumulated over the last 50 years. And so you were talking about a lot of different uh, fields of expertise that you got into. What was maybe um, a method that you used to make these big life choices of deciding what you wanted to do in the future? I, I think I followed my passion. I'm passionate about a lot of things. There are things I'm excited about. And, and, um, and I go to bed reading magazines nowadays on my iPad that have to do with the subject. Mostly it's woodworking and how to do various te new techniques. Just last night I saw a new technique on, on how to do uh, wood turning. I do a kind of wood turning called segmented wood turning where you glue a lot of, cut a lot of pieces together and glue them into rings and then stack the rings and then turn the bowl from that stack of rings. And um, so, um, I mean, what has caused me to make my decisions is my passion for it. Um, the times when I really didn't have a passion for something that I chose to do was I, when I went into administration, for example, when I was in that dean's job. Um, I did it as a service. I had been the chairman of the Graduate Studies Committee so I was one of the likely people to talk to about filling in for the man who died. So now suddenly I was an administrator and I didn't have a passion for administration, more power to those people who do, but I didn't. 
And so I, I applied for the job and then reality hit me that I might get it. I took my name out and, and went back to the department. And again there, I became chairman of the department. And, and um, after I did it for a few years and saw the paperwork and red tape that I had to deal with, I said, I don't want to do this. My passion's in biology. And so um, I resigned that too. So um, my uh, choices are, uh, have been driven by what I had a passion for. I chose the, I chose, uh, no, I didn't have the passion initially when I chose biology. I was just a passion for going into the Air Force, and which required me to graduate. But boy, I developed a passion after that for biology and it, it um, caused me to change my mind about being in the Air Force for a career. And so um, um, it was all, always what I was passionate about, what I really enjoyed. Now I have a passion for math. I don't understand it well, but if, if I had the opportunity, I'd go back and I don't know if my brain is still good enough to handle it. I'd go back and work on a degree in math. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story. It's been a pleasure talking to you.